We're going to be back in the book of Numbers, so open up your Bibles to Numbers 14. Numbers 14, after taking our brief hiatus at the empty tomb and that which followed, and that was not only fun to do, but it was really encouraging for me to go through that and think about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and what was important to him, why he said what he said, and, and, and how he proclaimed himself to his followers. But now we come to Numbers 14. Numbers 14, I'm just going to give you two verses here to start out. Numbers 14, verse 39, which says, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel... The people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. Lord, we recognize that these things happened to them as an example to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so I pray that we will see and understand the example. As I prayed earlier, Lord, I again ask your Holy Spirit to direct our hearts in such a way that, oh, first, Lord, they would be pierced. And secondly, we would gain understanding as we seek, Lord, truly, as your servant Paul said, to fight the good fight of the faith. We want to fight that fight, but sometimes it seems like, well, Lord, it doesn't seem like it goes so well. So would you apply these things? I leave that to your hands, Father, and pray that you would just take us through your word and show us your desire for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time we were Bamidbar in the wilderness on a Sunday morning was several chapters ago. It was only about three weeks ago, but we've already continued on on Wednesday night. And if you haven't been with us or tuning in, let me get you up to speed. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses gives a review of stage one of their wilderness journey with a single verse. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19, he says, then we set out from Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. We came to Kadesh. Kadesh Barnea, we talked about Wednesday, means holy desert of the fugitive. Kadesh from Kadesh, holy. And then Barnea, the desert of the fugitive. So this is the holy desert of the fugitive. I think that's a great description because that tends to be where holiness is perfected. Where vision is clarified. In the desert, in the fugitive desert, in our wanderings, in our difficult times. Not when we're at ease, but when we're struggling. And Moses called the terrain of their journey from Sinai all the way to Horeb. I'm watching my hand here because Naomi was telling me how funny it is, all my hand signals while I'm teaching. She said, you know, when you talk about a mountain, you always go like this. <laughs> and when you talk about a journey, you go like this. And, and then you're always talking about over here and up here. And I'm like, it just happens. I can't help it. So this is going to be all over the place. Just follow it. You know, I could just do this and we could study and see if you can follow anything at all. <laughs> the holy desert of the fugitive, that great and terrible wilderness. And you know what? It was great. 
in a terrible sense. Because it seems as though they had taken a step and the people already began grumbling. I don't know if their tevas were too tight or what the problem was, but they stepped out from Mount Sinai. And, and remember all that had happened prior to that. Go back two years if you want to. Go back to the beginning of the Exodus. The, the ten plagues and, and the miraculous supernatural delivery and the, the travel from Egypt finally to Mount Horeb and, and what they went through and how they were saved and protected and going through the sea. And then they come to Mount Horeb and they have visions of God. They see the Lord descend on the mountain and they hear the voice of the Lord. It terrifies them. And, and they say to Moses, look, you talk to him. We can't. This, it'll kill us. And all the experiences that, that they had there and the wonder and all the training and all the time God took to teach them and to perfect holiness in them and to clarify the vision of the promised land to which they were going. And they take a step away from Sinai and grumble, grumble, grumble. And that's how it begins. In fact, if you go back and look in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, they start right out. The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed of the outskirts of the camp. So this is like right at the beginning. God gets angry and fire surrounds the camp. Doesn't say that the people were necessarily burned, but the outskirts were burned. And of course, when we talked about that, we said how interesting that would force everybody to go inward toward the tabernacle, toward the presence. Sometimes the fire burns in our life to drive us closer to the Lord so that we would learn to trust him. But then after that, with, with no Arby's in sight, the rabble-rousers started saying, where's the meats? Who's got the meats? And in verse 10, or verse 4 of chapter 11, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? Verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their doorways, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. I mean, this is unbelievable. The men are standing in their doorway of their tents, weeping because they couldn't get a good burger. Come on. And it doesn't get better. Now, after two years with this people, Moses was weary of the whining. He was careworn of their complaining. He was, he was fed up. He had had enough down in verse 14 of chapter 11. This is all just in the first chapter when they set out from Mount Sinai. He says, I am alone not able to carry all this people. It's too burdensome for me. So he's speaking to the Lord. If you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. That's interesting to me because Moses did not like seeing the negative impact that his heavy ministry was having on his own attitude. What a humble guy. To recognize his frustration with the people was not the way he was supposed to be. Not the way he wanted to be before the Lord. What do you do? By the way, a little side note. When the grumbling and the complaining of others starts to wear on you. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you maintain, especially when it starts to make your own attitude become wretched? And you recognize you don't like yourself. You don't like how you're responding to the negativity of others. How do you keep on going? And the answer is very simple. You look to the one who loves. 
you look to the one who loves. You look again at Jesus, who said in John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another. And here's the key, just as I have loved you. So when I'm feeling wretched by the negativity of others, I look at Jesus and I remember how he loved me. And I can love again. Well, God gave Moses all the help he needed. He surrounded him with 70 men, poured his Holy Spirit into them to share and to bear the weight. As for the meat, well, he repeated what he had done exactly a year earlier. If you track this, it was in the second month of the first year that this already happened once. Now it's the second month of the second year out from Egypt. And the Lord sent the annual quail migration that happened every year and still does, by the way, across Africa and across the Middle East, the annual quail migration in the summertime, he directed it straight to the camp of Israel. See, that's the miracle in it. The quail migration, that would happen, but, but all to one particular location is the miracle, and he sent the quail in droves, in droves. Man, they were landing three feet high around the entire camp. Three feet high, of that's right in the strike zone. All they had to do was pass out bats. And by the way, you can read this in Numbers 11.32. Their batting averages soared. No, it did. Look at this. Numbers 11, verse 32. The people spent all day and all night the next day and gathered the quail. And he who gathered least gathered ten homers. That's amazing. It's the only time in baseball history where every homer was made with fouls. You can process that. <laughs> but many struck out. By divine plague, it turned into a horrible event. They ate until they were stuffed, until many began to get sick, and then God brought a divine plague. It says, while the meat was still in their teeth. And they were buried at a place called Kibrot Hata'ava, Graves of Greed. So this is, you know, they've just left Mount Sinai and they're heading out on their way and they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're greedy and it's like, have you not heard a thing that God spent all those months teaching you at Mount Sinai? Haven't you heard a thing? Sometimes I think we could say that of ourselves. Walk out of a Sunday morning. It's like, did we not hear a thing? I'm not saying that in judgment of any of you. I'm saying that in judgment of myself. This is true, it's actually happened. I've gone home on a Sunday and by late afternoon had my wife look at me and say, did you not hear what you taught this morning? I'm like, don't you judge me. Well then, you'd think that at least Moses could go back to family support. But Miriam and Aaron start bad-mouthing him. Behind his back, God overhears, as he always does, and Miriam, who, by the way, the text indicates was the instigator, was covered in leprosy. The, the original snowflake right there. Probably wasn't permanent. She was sent outside the camp, but it delayed them seven days. 
And she stayed outside the camp until she was clean. And then when she came back in the camp, then they continued on in this journey. Mind you, that should have only taken 11 days. And finally, in chapter 13 of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, they arrive at Kadesh Barnea on the border of the promised land. Now, note this, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, Moses says, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. But that is not how long it took them. And I got to correct something here because we indicated Moses called it that great and terrible wilderness. And on Wednesday night, I went, 11 days, 11 days. How hard can an 11-day trek be? Well, that's all it should have taken. But if you just add up, if you just look at what took place, the grumbling and the complaining. Listen, grumbling and complaining always makes a family trip seem longer than it should. Always. I will turn this car around and I'll go straight back home. Add in a month for the Major League All-Star game of quail, because they were there for a month as the quail came, it would have been shorter if they hadn't moved out of Atlanta, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> Add a week for Miriam's extreme eczema, and the 11-day journey at minimum became a great and terrible 48-day haul, and it didn't have to, and it's about to get much longer. Because at the border there of Kadesh Barnea, someone came up with the bright idea of sending out spies. Now I know Numbers chapter 13, verse 2, sounds like the Lord is the one who came up with the idea. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. So you say, oh, God told them to do it. Not so, because over again in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21 Moses said, see, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear, fear or be dismayed. And then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us, that they may search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up in the cities that we shall enter. Moses said, the thing pleased me. Apparently then Moses ran it by the Lord, and the Lord said, okay, all right. Send out spies. Or as we also said Wednesday night, send in the clowns. Because that's what 10 of them became. And then in Numbers 13 and 14, and I, I encourage you, if you haven't heard the teaching in 11 through 14, go back and listen. There's so much application to our immediate lives right now. But the spies return with a bad or evil report, and they lead the people in a panic and rebellion right there in the wilderness took 10 men, just 10 men with no faith to turn two to three million people into a bunch of unholy fugitives in the desert. And that's the background to where we are this morning. In verse 27 of Numbers 14, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 26, and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, remember there were 603,550 numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Skip down and look at verse 34. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, 40 years, and you will know my opposition 
They were opposed to the Lord. He says, now you're going to know what it's like for me to be opposed to you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent out to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out the bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord, and we're talking about that day. But Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yephunneh, remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. And you all know that Joshua and Caleb would be the only two to enter the promised land of that whole generation, including Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Verse 39, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Now again, that's the background. That brings us up to where we are right here in chapter 14. And if anyone says, Rick, you spent the first 15 minutes just doing a review, and now the sermon's going to be 15 minutes longer, I say to you, yes, and if you had been here Wednesday night, we wouldn't have had to do it. <laughs> Those of you who have, you know. Verse 40. You know, it, it's not preaching if there's not a little guilt. Just, just a little work it in there. Verse 40. And this is what's amazing. The people's response. They mourned greatly. And verse 40 says, in the morning, however, they rose up early. They went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. And it is, it's stunning. And my friends, this won't be the only time Israel goes into battle without the Lord. It'll be a first, but not the only time. In fact, it won't be long after this. In Joshua chapter 7, they have just had the remarkable battle of Jericho. Remember how that battle was fought? They march around the city and the walls fall down, you know, without lifting a finger. And then they go in and they take the city. But after that amazing, stunning, supernatural defeat of fortified Jericho, the next theater of conquest was a little region that was west of there called Ai. Ai. Again, they sent out spies. And the spies said, no problem. We don't even have to send the whole entire army of Israel. Just send two or 3,000 men. We're fine. We can take it. And so they went up against Ai, and they got completely routed. Nobody knew there was sin in the camp. Nobody was aware of the sin of a man named Achan. And his Achan-breaking heart messed up this, this battle for all of Israel. Listen to this. For those who say, well, that's not fair. One guy's secret sin undermines the battle of the entire people of Israel. How is that fair? They would have not been undermined. They would have known if they had consulted the Lord before going into battle. Nobody asked God if they should go up against Ai or, or how to go up. No one consulted with the Lord. They were so busy figuring out if they could, no one, not even Joshua, stopped to ask if they should go up against Ai. And so... They were routed. How about 1 Samuel chapter 4? People are in the land, and the Philistines are causing all kinds of problems, so the idiot sons of the high priest Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and if that offends you that I call them idiots, read the story. 
They carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines. Now listen to me, with the exception of the march around Jericho, which was not in and of itself battle. It was simply a march. It was a parade. With the exception of that, the Ark of the Covenant was never to be taken into battle. That was not okay. That was not a thing. That, the ark, was to stay in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, not to be carried as, a, as an emblem of war. You see the pictures of Indiana Jones and, and the whole, that whole story of Hitler wanting to get his hands on the ark to take it into battle. It's not supposed to be taken into battle. And the one time it was, the Philistines routed the Israelites. Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and the ark of the covenant was taken and put, in, put into the temple of Dagon which is a great story. It's kind of a here today, gone tomorrow story. We can talk about that another time. Why did they do it? Why did they carry the ark into battle, this precious, holy piece of furniture? And 1 Samuel 4, 3 tells us, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come and deliver us. Excuse me? Let's take the ark. It will be our protector, our deliverer from the power of our enemies. Talk about putting God in a box. And that's exactly what they did. Let's take the ark and we'll have the power in that little gold box as if the power was in the ark and not in the Lord. Now see, in the first battle against Ai, the people were fighting in the blind. They had no idea there was sin in the camp because no one had checked with the Lord. So they're fighting with blinders on. They don't know. Here in, in this battle, they're not fighting in the blind. They're fighting with brazen idolatry. Because they're believing in the box, in the ark, making it an idol. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. It's a tragic story. Word comes back to Eli the priest. They tell him, your sons are dead. He falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. The wife of Phinehas is in the midst of childbirth when she learns of her husband's death, and she begins to die in childbirth, and with her last breath, she names her soon-to-be-orphaned son Ichabod, which means glory gone. The glory has departed Israel. Men of Joshua and Ai fighting in the blind. The, the, the people fighting up against the Philistines. They were fighting in idolatry. And, and then there was a time when good King Josiah, in about the only foolish thing we see Josiah do, he's a marvelous king. He's a wonderful king. He's my favorite king other than David of all the kings of Israel. He's the one who cleared the high places of the idols. He's the one who brought the law back into play, who restored the temple, who restarted Passover, who began the reading of the scriptures again. Good King Josiah. But he got in the way of something God was doing. In 2 Chronicles 35, Pharaoh Necho is heading north up to fight the battle of Carchemish. And on his way up, he's moving through the valley of Megiddo. And Josiah says, uh-uh, I move through my area. And he rashly goes up against Pharaoh Necho. Pharaoh Necho actually had been given a word from the Lord. Now, this may seem odd to you, but God can talk to whoever he wants. And he told Necho that this is, this, he is to go and fight this battle. And Pharaoh Necho, when he heard Josiah was coming out to fight against him, he said in 2 Chronicles 35, 21, stop for your own sake. 
from interfering with God who is with me. God is the one who's told me to go up. You don't want to fight against me. You'll be fighting your own God. And the Bible confirms that God indeed had spoken to Pharaoh Necho. But Josiah wouldn't listen. And so an archer's arrow pierced him just outside the little village of Hadadramon in the valley of Megiddo. And King Josiah, the best king that Judah had seen since David, died at the age of 31 because, because he went needlessly into battle. It was such a loss for the people, by the way, that the Bible uses their mourning over Josiah as a picture of a future mourning. Listen to this, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, Jesus says. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the morning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. Ever feel like you're fighting a losing battle? Like you just can't seem to make headway in the difficulty before you? Ever wonder why your fight doesn't seem to make a difference? All these strategic failures of Israel, they share one thing in common, and that is they are fighting battles without the Lord. It's very simple, very obvious. Every battle lost was fought without the Lord. Whether without consultation, as in Joshua and the children against Ai, in blind ignorance, or foolish idolatry against the Philistines, or even headstrong interference with someone else's fight. I know none of y'all have ever done that. You get yourself messed up in someone else's battle that really wasn't yours in the first place. But there's something worse, and it's what I hope we can get and focus in on this morning, something worse that happened in their first foray into the promised land, their first attempt to go into the land, and it happened on the, on the ridge of the hill country of the Amorites, immediately following the fantastic failure of faith on the border and we see them mourn over the reality and the fallout of their failure in verse 39. In verse 40, we see them deciding to force the fight. Well, we'll go anyway. Yeah, we blew it. We sinned. We'll go anyway. Listen again. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, what a switch. What a, what a shift in 24 hours from, from abject mourning to absolute assurance that we can go take this place. They mourned, now they're ready to fight. They sorrowed, now they're reaching for a sword. It, it, it's a, a strange occurrence. The word mourned here, it comes from the root verb abal. A ball, which means lamented, and it's a word that is usually used in the rites of mourning for the dead. Weeping and wailing. It's a very Middle Eastern thing, especially historically. The weeping and wailing and mourning and the, oh, you know, making a big deal out of it. And there were professional mourners that they would hire and bring in. 
And that's what this word refers to. The emphasis, and the reason I mentioned that, is the emphasis on their mourning in verse 39 is external ritual mourning. Outward actions. And clearly not the inward sorrow of a pierced heart. I'll give you an example. The synagogue leader's daughter was dead. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 50, it says, when Jesus heard this, he answered him saying, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat, which is always good when you've died. You want to have something to eat when you're raised from the dead. You know, give me a snack. And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. I read that story, and I wonder, how do you go from lamenting one second to laughing in the next? From lamentation to abject laughter, how does this happen? It happens when the lament is not of the heart. When it's that professional lamentation, that outward, external show for the purpose of the funeral or the memorial, it's not heartfelt. And I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that people are not heartfelt at funerals, but, but in those days, when you're hired on and it's your job to go mourn, there's no heart in that. And it's the only way that you explain someone going from this kind of weeping suddenly to just laughing hysterically because you don't know what you're talking about. It tells you something about the weeping. The sons of Israel, they knew that the Lord was angry, no question. They saw the ten spies taken out. And they even confessed their sin. They say this in, in verse 40, here we are, we have indeed sinned. They recognized their sin, but they hadn't repented of their sin, which I believe is at the core of the issue. They seemed to think that all was, that was needed for atonement was an outward show of sorrow like a puppy who just peed on the carpet. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, those of you, and, and you, you feel free to disagree with me, send me all kinds of emails, whatever you want, but you dog-loving people, and I'm a dog lover, but I know some of you will say, no, when my puppy feels sorrowful, he's sorrowful. You haven't seen my puppy. You haven't seen my dog. He really feels, the, no, no, it's behavioral. He knows what's going to make you back off. Ears go down, tail goes between the legs, he slinks over to the side, because he knows if he does that, he's not going to get kicked. I know when I do this action, my master doesn't get angry with me. You just, ah, oh, you're so cute. It's behavioral, it's reactionary, it's outward. Puppy's not feeling it in his heart, I feel so bad that I just messed up the brand new carpet. I repent. Is that ever you? Not peeing on the carpet, but <laughs> is that ever you that you, you think, oh, I, I feel bad about my sin. Maybe I got caught. Maybe it's out there now. It's like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, I did it. I wish I hadn't gotten caught. But you know what? God's a God of grace. 
It's not that big a deal. God's forgiving. Let's move on to the next fight. And the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. What's the difference? The sorrow, according to the will of God, produces repentance. That's how you know it's true sorrow. That's how you know it's heartfelt, is the person now is repenting of what happened before. But the sorrow that is by regret, that just brings death. Because there's no turning to the Lord. Think about it this way. There is a chasm of difference between repentance and regret. Regret is just feeling sorry for yourself. Either that you got caught or that there was fallout for the sin or there there was some problem that came with it. Ah, it's kind of a bummer. I don't feel good about that. That's just regret. Repentance, and the Bible is clear on this, is turning both away from the sin and toward the Lord. It's a desire never to go down that road again and to turn to Jesus for the power not to. It's recognizing before the Lord What has really taken place here? That's why John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? That means if if you're truly repentant, it's going to show. It will be revealed in your behavior, in what you do, in how you react, and how you respond. As with the people of Israel, they mourned greatly, but then they're ready to just go about their business fighting the next day. If they had been truly repentant, they would have done what the Lord told them to do, which was go back into the wilderness. Turn it around, as we'll see in a moment. In Acts chapter 3, verse 18, Peter's talking about this. He says, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, Peter says, repent and return. So that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets to the, uh, from ancient time. The, until, the restoration, listen, I, I hadn't seen this, hadn't thought about this before, but he says repent and return. Why? So that times of refreshing may come, that's immediate, and that he may send Jesus. What does that mean? Do you realize that the return of Jesus Christ is delayed in part because of those who refuse to repent and return? That God is waiting on repentance? Not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. The Lord is holding. If the world had repented after the crucifixion, if the world had all repented at Pentecost, we wouldn't even be here. But the lack of repentance causes the delay, the holding off, the lingering of the Lord. Repentance is a heart issue. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, remember this? Peter begins to preach the truth of the crucifixion, what had happened in the resurrection. And the Bible tells us the people were pierced to the heart. And said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. 
Paul standing in chains before King Agrippa in that amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima. He says, I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also to Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Again, you're going to see an outward behavioral change. You'll know if the heart has repented. I know when my heart is repented because it literally changes my behavior. Why does this matter so much? Let me ask you a question, and this is real personal, and you just think it through yourself, but how many of us regret a mess that we've made while still soaking in the mess? While not changing from the sin, not turning from it at all. We feel bad about it, but we're making no effort to stop. Happens all the time in churches on a Sunday morning. Couple living together, sitting there in church, and they're pierced to the heart. And it's uncomfortable. Because that morning, the pastor just happened to be teaching out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Why now? Sexual immorality. And they're uncomfortable, and it doesn't feel good, and it doesn't feel right. And they go home and have lunch, and they stay right in the same situation. That's one just limited example. Worse, how many of you, don't raise your hand, (laughs) how many of you have charged ahead as if God is with you in a quest while ignoring the sin that so easily entangles your life? Let's fight. Let's go forward. No one has to know about this, but God knows. And the truth is, if we saw sin as Jesus sees sin, if we felt our sin the way Jesus feels our sin, every one of us would be lined up every Sunday morning in tears at the altar. We just would. Because we would recognize the gravity, the weight of those sin choices. Hey, the mourning and the bitter weeping of Israel over a pierced Jesus... Zechariah 12, verse 10, that's why I read that verse to you. That is sorrowful repentance. When they recognize who he is and what their choices did to him, do you? Do I recognize my sin choices drove the nails? That the eternal wounds in his hands are there because of what I did? Of what I chose? If we really understood our pitiable state before him, we would lay down the weapons of our warfare and we would bow in sorrow according to the will of God before we ever took a step into another battle. And that, I think, is why a lot of our battles seem unwinnable or we seem like we're just not making headway in the fight. You've heard this before, but if you're not sure what to do next, go back to the last thing God told you to do. If you're not sure why you can't seem to move forward, stop and pray and ask the Lord to search your heart and bring to mind that which perhaps needs repentance, that which needs a turning toward him and a clearing of of conscience and a writing of the heart. But instead, so many, and I'm talking about Christians, go into battles blind as the Israelites at Ai or, or foolish as Hophni and Phinehas with the ark, or as headstrong as Josiah in Megiddo. Or worse than all of that, we force the fight as if nothing's wrong. And that's exactly how the people awoke the next morning. Okay, 
dry the eyes, we're good to go. They were ready, not ready to fight. But my friends, listen, please get this. You cannot take the kingdom by force. They couldn't take the promised land by force. What do you mean? They had to fight battles. Yeah, with the Lord, by the power of God, under the leading of the Holy Spirit. But they were not to go in and just force their way into the land and just take the land by their own power. And so Moses, with a breaking heart, gives them a stern warning. Verse 41 of Numbers 14, Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? What was the commandment of the Lord again? Back in verse 25. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. You know which way that was? Back where they had come from. Don't go up. Go back, God says. I need to take you back into the wilderness for a while. I need to take you away from this promised land for a while, for a time. We got some more training to do. Head back toward the Red Sea in verse 34, he said, according to the number of days which is spied out of the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, 40 years. So we got a 40-year uh, training program that you guys need to go on. Do that. That was what God had commanded. And Moses said, if you go up, you are transgressing the command of God. You are not doing what he told you to do. Had they a sorrow according to the will of God, their sorrow would have led to repentance and packing up their gear and heading back toward the Red Sea. That's what should have happened. That would have proven to you and to me that they understood what had taken place and that they were truly repentant. Verse 42, Moses continues, Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord as opposed to turning to the Lord. And the Lord will not be with you. But the hard-hearted Hebrews were not hearing him. All they wanted to do, see if this sounds familiar, all they wanted to do was just get on with it. Just get on with it. Downplay the seriousness of the sin in their refusal of repentance and force a fight that's doomed to fail. That happens so much in this world and, and, and in the church. We'll sin big, we'll make a little course correction, and then we'll just continue right on as if nothing really happened. Why? Because we don't want to deal with it. I, I don't want to deal with the reality of my sin. I don't want to have to confess and repent and be honest and open about that. I don't want that stuff out there. Let's just sweep it to the side and continue on and fight on for the Lord Verse 44 says, they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. As if to underscore that they went on their own. Heedlessly. The word is yapalu in Hebrew and it means recklessly. They went up recklessly. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 41, we get the parallel description of their going up. It says, then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. There's the confession. We will indeed go up and fight. There's the lack of repentance. We did it. We're not going to repent of it. We're going to keep going. We're not going to turn to the Lord. We're going to turn to our own ways. 
We will indeed go up and fight, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, although he hadn't at that point. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war, and listen, Moses says, you regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. We would say, no big deal. Verse 42, and the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, Moses says, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. And in Numbers 14, 44, where it says they went up heedlessly, here in, first, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 43, it says you acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. Heedlessly, meaning recklessly. The word presumptuously is a different word. It's tatzidu, and it means rebelliously proud. Rebelliously proud. Ain't no thing, so we sinned. We're still all children of God, right? So we'll just go on up and we will take the land. And the same attitude plagues the world today. It's the same problem among us, churched or not. That, that reckless presumption, that reckless presumption is not how to go into battle for the Lord. That is not how we are to fight. Our fight is so different. You know, we don't fight by force at all. We fight by faith. And that fight always begins by first turning to Jesus in repentance. Revelation chapter four, verse four. I have this against you, he says to the mighty first century church. He says to the Ephesian church. He says to the apostolic church, I have this against you. Your fight has been strong. You haven't tolerated the sin and the wickedness and the Nicolaitans. Yeah, that's all I, good stuff, but I have this against you. And you know what it is? You've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Turn it around and do the deeds you did at first. What deeds are those? Love Jesus. Love the Lord. Turn to him. Rely on him. Trust in him. Or else, Jesus says, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What does that mean? Holy Spirit's going to leave that fellowship. Why are churches dead and dying and, and, and shriveling in the world today? It's not COVID, my friends. It's the removal of the Holy Spirit from the presence of a people. And that's what happens when a people function outwardly, fighting the good fight with all kinds of reckless presumption and buried sin and no love, and he says, that's not me. That is not representing who I am. We don't ignore sin to fight on presumptuously. You want to fight for a marriage? Repent first. Yeah, that's right. She needs to repent. What about you? I've had this conversation so many times over the years. It's the other person's problem. It's both. Yeah, but the other person, I understand that. Why don't you deal with God? Why don't you turn to the Lord? You want to fight the good fight in the workplace? You can start by repenting of all the ungodly things you've done there. <laughs> 
attitudes that you've had, rebellions, behaviors. Go back and think about it. How have I represented Jesus or have I not? And if I have not, I repent, Lord. Caught in a struggle with addiction or, or mental health issues. So the Bible would say your first act is to repent. Wait, how, I'm, I'm offended. You're saying repent of my mental health issues? Yes. That is turn toward the Lord. Offer it to him. A follower of Jesus Christ who is tied up with anxiety is not following Jesus Christ. Now, again, no offense. But if our trust is purely and wholly in him and in his glorious ability to deal with anything, shouldn't we start there? In our fears and our doubts and our worries and our stress and our issues? Start with him, return, repent. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. I love this verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Yeah, that's the good stuff, right? Destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that sounds so good and so powerful. Sounds great. Super spiritual, super intrepid, super courageous, and super presumptuous. If... We go fighting that fight without Jesus. If we're all into the weapons of our warfare, but we're not thinking about our captain. If we're not first humbly dependent upon Jesus for all things. See, that's why the Lord prescribed a year for every day that the spies were in the land. A year for every day. What do you mean? It would take them that long to understand and to learn this. Every day they were in the land was a day of sin because it was a day without faith. And for every sin, there's a year of retraining that needs to take place. That, I think that's actually somewhat appropriate. In my life, maybe not in yours, but in my life, some major sin, it takes about a year to move through the grace and the forgiveness and the repentance and all that goes with it to finally be restored and functioning where that sin no longer has hold. And so 40 years they would be relearning we don't like long battles. I've learned more about taking on the powers that be in our three-year-long adoption battle than I ever understood before. I don't like it. I'm not happy about it. But I'll tell you what I've learned. I've learned that the powers that be are not the USCIS, the United States uh, Immigration services. I've learned the powers that be really are not the Ghanaian Department of Social Welfare. I've had many angry words against both bureaucratic organizations. And when I say the word bureaucratic, yes, I say it with still a little bit of spite. But I've recognized something, my friends. They are not the powers that be. You know who the powers that be are, right? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. How in the world do we think we can stand up and fight that 
by the strength of our arm and the weapons of our warfare. And that's why Paul says the weapons of our warfare are, they're not like the world. It's not the same. We don't war according to the flesh. That right there should stop us in our tracks and say, well, if I don't war according to the flesh, how do I war according to the spirit? What do I do? I turn to him first. I have to turn to him first. I got to have a heart that's clear. Isn't that what God wants us to be pure in heart? So I need to deal with him so that he deals with me. And I'm cleansed of whatever it is that would keep me from being able to really fight the spiritual battle that I'm called to fight. And by the way, then he follows that, and you know this, he says, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And Paul says, and note this list, having, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God work in concert, absolutely connected. And with all prayer and petition, Pray at all times in the spirit. Every aspect of the armor for fighting the battle that we are truly called to fight is from the Lord. It's all from him. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. And if we don't repent and return first, then guess what? We fight uncovered. We go into the battle naked with no protection whatsoever, completely on our own. No strength, no covering, no protection, no defense, and no offense, by the way, in that list. We only have two offensive weapons. We have the word of God, and we have prayer in the spirit. That's all we've got. Why would we fight without either one? Well, I, I don't want to fight without either one. Then repent. Because until we repent and turn to the Lord, we are incapable of wielding these weapons. Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Some will still say, and I've heard this many times, we've got to take the kingdom by force. And the implication is imposing it vigorously on this world we will do it. We will bring it. We will fight for it. And Jesus never said that. He never said that. Some would beg to differ. Matthew 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Let me ask you a question. Since when are violent men the picture of spiritual life? Can you show me anywhere else in Scripture where that, that's what it means to be spiritual, to be violent? I seem to recall that violence is the only issue that's raised in the flooding of the world the first time. And what did Jesus say to Pontius Pilate? John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not 
of this realm. That's why he prayed, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom's got to be brought. The kingdom has to come. And the only one who can bring it is the king. Taking the kingdom by force, especially in, in, in Christian think, it sounds bold and tough and courageous and cool and heedless. That's what Jesus was saying. See, when he said, violent men, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force, listen to the context as, as Luke gives us a little more. Luke 16, verse 15. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Everyone's trying to get hold of it. Picture Jesus in the Galilee having fed the 5,000, and they're trying to force him to be king. Let's bring the kingdom now. Let's do it now. Come on, we can fight now. And Jesus says, that's not the way. That is not how you enter the kingdom. The kingdom is not taken. It is not forced. It is not imposed. It is not coerced. It's received. The kingdom is received. And it's received in humble, sorrowful, repentance of heart and then and then it's offered with that same kindness that same gentleness of heart as jesus said luke 12 32 do not be afraid little flock your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom what are you striving for luke 18 17 truly i say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of god like a child will not enter it at all it means without guile, without hidden stuff. Kids are not good at hiding things. <laughs> it's all out there. Our warfare in this world is completely different. So what happens if we force the fight? Final question. What happens if we force the fight? We go in blindly as at AI. We go in foolishly as against the Philistines. We go impulsively like Josiah at Megiddo. Or in this case, as our study shows, we go in heedlessly, presumptuously. What happens? Verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Hormah. Which in the Hebrew... Look it up. It means devoted to destruction. Devoted to destruction. Let me ask you, what's your fight? What's your battle this morning? And then with that, as you consider the fight, the battle, the struggle, whatever it might be, whatever it may be, because I'm praying that some of this will stick in our spirits for a while because if battles come and fights come, that we're, we're thinking about this, What's your fight? That's one question, but the better is where's your devotion? Where's your devotion before the fight? There are lots of good causes in the world, lots of good moral and social and even political battles that we as Christians can enter, that we as Christians can choose to fight. But listen, we will lose every single time if we don't fight the good fight of the faith, of the faith which is what Paul was explaining to Timothy three times. First Timothy chapter one, verse 18, when he says, fight the good fight 
How, Paul? Keeping faith and a good conscience. Or 1 Timothy 6.11, pursue righteousness, Timothy, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's how you fight the fight. With righteousness and goodness and godliness and love and gentleness. And then finally, Paul says, 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Where did Paul say that? On death row. As he's about to be executed. The good fight begins right here. Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I am so sorry. And I need you. And that, by the way, is not just a prayer for a first-time believer. That's a prayer any believer can pray anytime. Jesus, I, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I am so sorry. And I need you to save my marriage. I need you that I might be a good witness to my friends at work. I need you to fight whatever fight he's placed before you. And so I repent of my sin and I repent of my rebellion and I repent of my arrogant Christian pride. I set it aside and I turn to you, Lord, and say, I'm a sinner. Forgive me and Spirit, give me your weapons of warfare that I might fight the good fight. David said it really well. I'll end with this, Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Father, we, we confess to you we are sinners. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. Oh, so thankful washed clean and, and seen by you as righteous. But Lord, we know that we still have human tendencies. We know we still walk in the flesh. And, and so this morning, Father, every follower here can join me in praying this. We pray, Father, would you clean our hearts? Would you clean us fresh and new? We turn to you because you're the only one who can do that. And you're the only one who can truly bring pure hearts and so we repent and ask for that. And if anyone should be here this morning or listening to this and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, today, just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you. And I am turning to you. Forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for me, the ultimate battle and rose from the dead. And so believing, I ask you to come into my heart today and save me. In Jesus' name, amen.